I'm composing on a typewriter late at night, thinking of today, how well we all spoke. A language is a map of our failures. Fred Frederick Douglass wrote an English purer than Milton's. People suffer highly in poverty. There are methods, but we do not use them. Joan, who could not read, spoke some peasant form of French. Some of the suffering are, it is hard to tell the truth. This is America. I cannot touch you now. In America, we only have the present tense. I am in danger. You are in danger. The burning of a book arouses no sensation in me. I know it hurts to burn. There are flames of napalm in Cannesville, Maryland. I know it hurts to burn. The typewriter is overheated. My mouth is burning. I cannot touch you. And this is the oppressor's language. And that's Adrian Rich, the burning of paper instead of children. A short passage from that poem that was referenced in our latest reading of Bell Hook's work, Teaching to Transgress. Welcome to season four of Safe Topics. In this series, we're talking about books. And other things. Yes, other things, but we're going to go deep on some books. Not like a full book review, but like a chapter by chapter review, which I guess adds up to a full book eventually. <laughs> yes. And we're going to talk about anything else that makes us think about how we teach and why we teach. And we want you, the audience, to join us. Listen for details about how to do that at the end of this episode. All right, here we go. Curry, the oppressor's language. Yes. Thinking about just that phrase as a letters person, where does your mind go? So it goes back to my sort of, you know, originally my training in critical theory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is that persistent dilemma of do you break a system? Do you work within a system? This is also, it makes me go to just how our language and who we are is so intertwined and indelible, right? And the the tools of an oppressive state, um, the first move is to take away a, a, another person's language. Um, just, just by virtue of doing that, you position yourself as an authority, which is something we should talk about as teachers when we say our discourse or our vocabulary, like there's an immediate authority move there. So we should loop back to that. Um, but I think, I think what hooks is getting at in chapter 11 uh, titled language is, you know, there is that history of, of the oppressor's language and a lost language by the, you know, the diaspora, but there's also a, an ownership of a language and the, the, capacity to flex within that language for purposes of resistance and disruption and power and strength and expression, all those things. So it's, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that though, is that what you see in the great contemporary writers is that flexing and that manipulation of the oppressor's language to create new, or is it more like, or is there still kind of the use of that traditional, let's say, dominant language that still is considered, you know, um, literary, like, it, that's considered great today? And I, I'm having a hard time formulating this question because yeah. what I really want to ask is, like, is what makes writing great today the resistance and the manipulation of that oppressor's language, or is there still kind of great writing in the sense that it is that traditional oppressor's language? Do you do you understand yeah. what I'm trying to get at with that? I think so. I think so. So I think I think it hinges on your use of the word great and what we mean by great, because and you know so breakthrough, breakthrough, yeah, and, and then for whom, 
right? And that that's the key there. And and Hooks really gets into this in a couple of places because she's that that gets at audience. So you have language that's surprising me, that's resonating me with me, that's moving me, that's moving my community. I would call that language great, that writing great. But another audience may not be able to hear it or or may hear it as sort of, you know, dissonant or or unconventional, right? And so may judge Artsy. it as go ahead. Artsy. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Or whatever. And so it then it just like which audience is in charge of deeming it great and then making it visible right that's does that make sense i don't know if that's to what extent though is it the audience of your peers as as academics in uh in the discipline of literature of letters of and and in how much of it is in the hands of the populace and what what makes the times you know um bestseller list exactly exactly so these spheres right these different domains Right, that they're 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 really what tends to shape all the. Think of what we just came through. Uh, we can kind of timestamp this podcast a little bit. We just came through the holidays, and you always yeah. have the January top ten lists. These sort of oh yeah 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 right the canonical. This is the best show, the best songs, the whatever. Like best that's book. what yeah the best book yeah that's mm-hmm. sort of what this is. And you can ignore a list if it's in a domain that you don't care about, but if it's in a domain you do care about, that tends to be kind of compelling. Which, I mean, this brings us away from the path, but I, I think about like when I watch a really good show now, which it seems like there's just an abundance of good shows, honestly. Yeah. Um, when the writing is so good, does that writing belong to literature? Does that writing belong to those who um, are, 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 you know, centered around the screen? Right. Right. No, so, okay. So this is, <laughs> see, so like, who controls expression? Is it the speaker or is it the listener? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think this is some this this is a core issue in chapter nine, um, yes. uh, feminist scholarship, black scholars, where Hooks is really grappling with her own scholarship and how she was seen as a threat, and she's advocating for feminist thinking. Um, um, within, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, paying attention to race and, and racialized um, 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 bodies and, and particularly black community mm-hmm. and her stuff's not being received and or is not being received by the communities she's trying to share with. Right. Right. And, and there's this push pull because, I mean, I could take sociology as an example of like there there's, you know, sociology if you want to call it like a purist kind of argument, right. Of like, we're studying people in groups. That's what we're doing. Right. But does that mean we, we turn a blind eye to, you know, these social justice issues Mm -hmm. that happen when people get into groups. Mm -hmm. And obviously the answer is no, but how far does the pendulum swing? I think is always a debate, a discussion and a push pull within the discipline of like, are we doing this for the purposes of social justice? You know, I just had a class today, we're, you know, after the holidays. So we're in the beginning of a new term here in the spring. And, you know, one of the things that I bring up is like, what is the purpose of science? Right. And, you know, when we consider ourselves and are a social science, are we here for the betterment of humanity? And our findings should always lead us toward actions behaviors, policies that lead to a better outcome for people overall and specifically? Or are we finding things out to find them out because that curiosity, um, the human curiosity is what really needs um, to be fed, right? And I don't think you, I would say, you know, as an, if I was an objective observer, you can't really go wrong with either argument, but you definitely have to be considerate of both if you're going to be a scholar of any worth. Totally. Yeah. Do we are, especially in a classroom, are we just going through the procedures and the vocabulary of whatever this discipline is for its own sake, just so you have the language and the methods, but then why we're doing it is something you'll discover later. Or do we want to keep those things tied together always? And it goes to objectivity, right? Like I could say, look, 
this corporation manufactures these items that are harmful to people. Okay. I said harmful. Right. Now I could say this corporation manufactures these products and these products have had these various outcomes for these various populations. Then I could say these corp this corporation manufactures products. You know, <laughs> so I'm getting further and further away yeah. because this goes to, and it, it all ties back to the book. So hang yeah. with me, folks. It, yeah, can, yeah. It, it, it ties back to this idea. And, and it really grabbed me when, when Hooks um, wrote about that, author oh my gosh I, I should have the name right here in front of me but remember that bell hooks wrote the book ain't i a woman yep and this author didn't respond with but wrote a book later that was called aren't i a woman deborah white thank you deborah white yes. and bell hooks was pretty cool about it because it was like i don't know if white was like playing off of my work or what's going on here sounds like it kind of right mm -hmm. but then this um author white she claimed that her work was politically neutral. Right. And that's something that I really wanted to talk to you about today was like the idea of political neutrality. Can that exist in literature? Can that exist in sociology? Can that exist in our classrooms, no matter the discipline? Right. Yeah, that's a question I've been grappling with from a few chapters back and maybe one or two of these podcasts we've recorded. Yeah, can so are any of our teaching pedagogies or curriculums ideologically neutral? Um, no, yeah. <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> Zaretta Hammond, we can Zaretta continue, Hammond. but I quickly go to no, <laughs> no, I gotcha, I gotcha, I, I'm, I'm there too. Zaretta Hammond says all teaching is culturally responsive. But we don't always think about to whose culture we're responding. Right. right? And that that's the culture. Exactly. And that that's the real work of culturally responsive teaching or equity minded teaching. It's reflect on what ideologies, what cultures, what values, what goals, what judgments we bring into a space and then think about who our students are and then engage that that work. Um, so but 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 here's the dilemma. I teach a critical thinking class. How do I, in honesty, teach critical thinking if I'm also supplying some agendized or ideological uh, goals or, or, or experiences, et cetera, right? And so, so I struggle with that. And, and I think where I'm at right now, to your, to your quick no answer, I'm, I'm in a similar space. But what I think about is, yeah, my teaching is ideological but I want it to be ideologically aligned with liberal pluralism, right? With like, with like democratic exchanges in which there, there, there is the ability of everyone to participate persuasively and listen deeply, right? Um, and respect one another. So I definitely bring values into my classroom, but I try to think about which, which of those values are most aligned with the goals of critical thinking such that each student can actually engage a critical thinking process equitably. Does that make sense? And I don't know if I'm cheating there. I, that, I really that, don't. I've been thinking that, about this. <laughs> that does make sense. It makes me think like, is that even possible to democratize the space when simultaneously there is a push and maybe even people feel compelled to, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, to um engage in a restorative justice approach to the selection of readings to the yeah. to the the discourse and to the 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 the, the arc of the class itself right, right? is it, bending towards social justice right. which to me sounds great honestly but right. then at the same time i was thinking about um what, what what was that quote you just said okay about the the which culture so and i said dominant culture quickly but even with that, that statement right there is already taken right. to go in a certain direction. Right. So Sean said dominant culture. And that automatically means that I'm resisting or not in favor of dominant culture. Right. Now, I'm asking this question in a pun intended neutral way. Like, the, is dominant culture always bad? Because that's the connotation. If I say dominant culture, that's already has a negative 
um, slant to it. Does sure. it not? Yeah. No. Yeah. Because yeah, dominating is not yeah. good, right? right? I mean, yeah. that that's that's not what. We, but whatever. Especially if we're teaching yeah. to transgress or no, you know, yeah, as a practice yeah. of freedom. And as Curry holds up the book to remind me what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's well, locally no. though. Yeah. But. That, that there's so many layers to this, right? Because so in this chapter language where Hooks is really creating, and, and there's a couple quotes that I want to get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, she's not just creating space for heterodox language. She's she's giving us as teachers a toolkit for hearing plural voices. Wait, and, what's and heterodox? We'll heterodox. So heterodox, you were talking about a dominant culture. So heterodox is anything sort of outside that orthodoxy, right? It's oh, the, okay, cool. Right. So, okay. So, and I want to get to that toolkit in just a second, but <laughs> what she's also doing in this book is writing in academic prose. She shakes that up from chapter to chapter. She is disrupting that and transgressing that. Right. But she's, and she speaks to that, that sort of modality in this, this chapter language, like why she adopts it, but also why she's a little worried about that. Right. So, but as so just to your point earlier, so, OK, so we can re resist, try to resist dominant cultures in our classroom while we also teach the domination of our own discipline so that students can move on to the next. <laughs> Does that make right. sense? Or we teach the orthodoxies of our disciplines, right? Sure. Yeah. In, in orthodox ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you did you have a quote dialed up? I do. I do. OK, so this is the powerful move. If we go back to your original question, Sean, about audience authors right and sort of where that control lies so uh, this is just one place that she says that she comes at this in a couple of different ways but i'm on page 172 uh in language um so okay so using the vernacular means that translation into standard english may be needed if one wishes to reach a more inclusive audience in the classroom setting I encourage students to use their first language and translate it so they do not feel that seeking higher education will necessarily estrange them from that language and culture they know most intimately. Okay. And then a little lower, she says, pedagogically, I encourage them to think of the moment. So hearing this, right? So students in here hearing this language, in particular, Black vernacular. Pedagogically, I encourage students to think of the moment of not understanding what someone says as a space to learn. Such a space provides not only the opportunity to listen without mastery, without owning or possessing speech through interpretation, but also the experience of hearing non-English words. These lessons seem particularly crucial in a multicultural society that remains white supremacist. And she keeps going, but I'll, I'll end there. Um, so she she encourages, this is her pedagogy. We're going to have moments in this class where someone says something and we will not have full understanding of what they say. Yeah. And that's powerful both for audience, but it's also powerful for speakers. Like I have right. so much confidence if I know, oh, there's space for that in this class. Right? No, yeah. Well, it's just like when I just asked you what heterodox means, I feel like. Yeah, exactly. See? That, that you know, we're practicing this right now. Yeah. <laughs> now... It, it, it's tough because to ask students to do that, you got to set a hell of a foundation first. Yeah. Because where is the safety? Where is the trust? I don't like the word safety. You know that. But where is the trust yeah. in, in this? Like we could, you know, one could argue that you can t tell students this and ask them of this. But if it's the only the 75 minutes they get with you. And in all their other classes and what it means to be a college student, what it means to become a professional or, you know, educated. That might not be enough to turn the tide for your 75 minutes for them to authentically express themselves. So that kind of learning through listening can occur. Right. I agree. So setting that up is that and that's the classroom dynamic what this this brings me to a question that i kind of have for you is with the um the first part that you said there and and what she was referring to was um what was the first line just in there yeah, yeah sorry let me get back to it I jumped ahead to another spot so uh, using the vernacular means that translation into standard English may be needed if one wishes 
to reach a more inclusive audience. Right. And I don't know there what, what, what because several times in this chapter, she, she refers to the black vernacular, right? Right. Yeah. Um, my, my question to you is in, in selecting texts, well, first off, how do you authentically teach texts that may not authentically represent you, your experience, your language, yeah. and maybe something that is, this is what's happening to you before it even reaches the classes, you're reading this text, and now you have to learn words and vernacular that are really um, not part of part of your experience in in communicating. You're talking about Curry here. Y- you Curry as the the English instructor, the the you know uh, assigning literature that is not representative of your experience right and i know this is really like i'm throwing like fastballs now but <laughs> is that okay you yeah, can throw I'm... me some fastballs i'm good with it but oh yeah we, we've it's a done... tough thing yeah and i know you've thought of it so i'm not like i know this isn't totally blind i know you're like ready with answers for this kind of stuff because this is you're not going to do it unless you know you can do it you know Right. And plus we can edit this out later. <laughs> we don't even have to publish it ever. I mean, this doesn't have to go anywhere. So yeah. <laughs> no, it's really hard. It's really hard. And and so, um, and, and what I hear you asking is something I, I, you're right. I think about this a lot. Like how I do not want to, I don't want to engage with, in tokenism and I don't want to engage in the this is what the kids will like these days kind of sort of stupid. Or this is what the kids need these days. Sure. You know, right. that's, yeah. that's another way of looking at it, right? There you go. There you go. My move, my move is to select texts that, that sort of set up a kind of model, but I want to be careful with that word model. Um, mm-hmm. They set up a kind of like maybe length or a kind of sort of type of expression like an argument or a story or a poem whatever it is right so i'll set i'll choose text that set a model and then the next move is to have students find texts that dialogue or sort of complement or or sort of resonate with that model that they see value in right and that could mean anything it could mean vernacular it could mean ideas it means whatever and so we kind of we do this curation together in my class. So me selecting wow. text is really just selecting space with a jumping off point, and then we fill that space with all kinds of text that we we grab together. Are they necessarily uh, uh, complementary to to the selection that you made, or? Well, like I said, so the topics could be wildly different, but the style of writing could be similar. Or the style of writing could be, you know, totally different, but the topics are all the same. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is kind of like, this is a very obvious question and maybe just appropriate here is like, can you explain to me what kind of model or better word, whatever structure or Mm -hmm. writing that we're experiencing here thus far with with teaching to transgress? Like, how would you explain that to a class? what, What we're reading? What we're reading? Yeah. So, okay. So (laughs) that's so interesting. Okay. We just read chapter nine. We skipped chapter 10. We're going to talk about that next time. And we got into chapter 11. Right. Chapter nine feels like an essay to me. Mm -hmm. Chapter 11 is more arguments or she's a bit more like not loose in her structure, but she's, she's sort of pushing against structures like, right. Chapter 10 is a fucking podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a pedagogical seminar is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's other forms that she's playing with this in, in this book too. So I love texts like bell hooks because there's so much variety here. Right. And we can, we can see it in layers and we can see it in the hole and and all that. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? That that does. No, that does make sense. Well, because I asked you a question that's impossible to answer because it's a collection of essays. Yes. So we've seen dialogue. We've seen monologue. We've seen, you know, an essay. We've seen uh, step-by-step instructions on how to do, like, she kind of covers a lot of different things, you know, that we've seen political ideological arguments, history lessons, you know, she's, she's all over the place, but on theme, you know? Totally. And- if I could just say one more thing, just in response to that, 
what what hooks and obviously, well, I'm going to make an assumption here. She's an English teacher, so I think that's is why she does this. She totally is, yes. <laughs> so she's playing in language, but she's also consistently supplying her readers with how, how like ways in, and like mm-hmm. like sometimes that's implicitly and sometimes it's explicitly. And and so I want to read one more passage, and this relates to the passage I read earlier. This is towards the end of this chapter, language. She says. I suggest that we do not necessarily need to hear and know what is stated in its entirety, that we do not need to master or conquer the narrative as a whole, that we may know in fragments. I suggest that we may learn from spaces of silence as well as spaces of speech, that in the patient act of listening to another tongue, we may subvert that culture of capitalist frenzy and consumption that demands all desire must be satisfied immediately or we may disrupt the cultural imperialism that suggests one is worthy of being heard only if one speaks in standard English. I feel like I'm rocking out to that. That is so good. It's like any good book. The learning is in part when you're reading it. Mm -hmm. And when you step away from it and you're just walking around fucking thinking of this shit, you know, like that's where you're really learning. It's like bouncing around. You're like, Oh yeah. Oh, Yeah. Oh, that's a, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you come back to it because this is what I've been doing. This is like the format with it. I've been like, I'll listen to it once semi-distracted while I'm doing something. And then I'll be thinking about some of the things that are said. Then I sit down and I read the chapter. Yeah. And then I go over a third time to do the notes and, and select the text to pull out and, you know, think about questions to ask you and things like that. And in that process, it's the in between each of those activities that I feel like I learned the most. Like she said, the spaces of silence. Right. Totally. That's where I've learned the most with this book. Yeah, for sure. That's right. And that makes it hard to record a podcast about because <laughs> that, air. This is that capitalist frenzy that we have to fill with sounds. <laughs> oh yeah. The sounds that come out of our face. Yeah. But uh, Right. Well, we did the silent part. Well, after this, if you're listening, then you can just not listen anymore and there you go. <laughs> learn whatever you learn from that. <laughs> Perfect. I want to kind of go back to chapter nine for a bit. Cool. Because there is, um, I feel like what Bell Hooks is talking about a lot are these turning points of like when the audience actually gets these different artists and these different voices. Unfortunately, I will use that value judgment of saying it's unfortunate that that typically happens when members of a dominant group or the dominant group um, allow that to happen or they become interested in it. We see this a lot, right? Of like, okay, now, now these folks are into it. So now it reaches everybody else. Before that, the the work has been going on just unrecognized or very much underrecognized. And I want to talk about maybe turning points in, like, have you observed turning points in your discipline when you think about representations of race, gender, sexualities, et cetera? And, And like where your discipline was in your view, right? Because you, you're, I know that you are not the person that, that can speak for the entire discipline, but you could speak to your experience as an undergrad excited about literature yeah, and what the landscape looked like to you from that vantage point, as opposed to today being a seasoned vet in terms of your teaching and, 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 hearing the discussions and discourse and seeing that evolve in your discipline. Yeah. So what are some of those turning points and what it looked like to you then? What does it look like now to you? Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. I know (laughs) we're here to talk. Uh, We're filling in the spaces. I think, I think I can respond to that better from my own sort of reading perspective, maybe, maybe more than just for the discipline, like you said, not for the discipline as a whole. That's fair. Yeah. And I would section that out as like my high school reading and encounters with literature versus uh, like graduate school um, and, I, you know, uh, 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 encounters with literature and then teaching um, high school. And I'll use the same value judgment, unfortunately, seems to still be <laughs> teaching us the same canon as my my kiddos go through public school 
you know, it's still Lord of the Flies. It's still Macbeth. It's of all the books that have been written <laughs> since, why are we still, <laughs> they're fine. They're fine, but let's add to this stuff, man. Okay. Are uh, they fine or are they good? I mean, I no, I, I don't know. I <laughs> having read as you know, other books and knowing who this generation of readers are. Yeah. They're, they're fine, but they're not, <laughs> they're not like, this is, this is going to really shake their thinking. Um, and, uh, I'm not going to get on a soapbox for that. I still think about piggy once in a while, but I anyway. know, I yeah. know, but yeah, I'm still not getting on that soapbox. And okay, I get it. I get okay. it. Let's move. So Let's move. <laughs> contrast, contrast that with my, um, like undergrad, grad school reading. Mm -hmm. I, I went to a program where cultural studies was the framework for the literature and writing department. Right. And, and cultural studies was, it, it had multiculturalism. It had, you know, so diverse um, 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 canons and, and, and rethinking canons, but cultural studies is also so, so, you know, um, just indelible with critical theory that like everything is like the, the whole notion of a text becomes really, really interesting. Right. And so what is literature and what is expression? All of that stuff just blew up for me um in grad school and then in was, that, was that centered on this idea of representation or am i mischaracterizing it for sure yeah okay. for sure and identity for sure i'm mischaracterizing it no 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 it is. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> um identity histories language yeah all that stuff is fundamental right um so, so, but then, and then getting back into the classroom though, it's like those really interesting abstractions suddenly have to become focused and salient because I'm going to walk 20 to 25, you know, students through a program where by the end of it, we can talk about it, we can write about it, et cetera. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that, again, that doesn't really answer your question for the, the moves within my discipline necessarily, but my own practice of it, that's, yeah, it's, and where I've arrived is. I, I, I cannot in my class say, here's the canon, here's the English 100, even if it's a tiny canon that's just in my English 100 class. What I want to do is, here are the touchstones, right? Like here, here are the leaping off points in terms of authors and text. You bring some too. And then together we're going to negotiate this author, audience, what, what is great expression we will we will collectively define that by the end of the class and we'll we'll work with each other in our own writing so that we all feel like we're doing it you know yeah is that is that done as a department like do you like here's the touchstone here's the the work that that is representative of the things that we think are important to have the exposure for this undergraduate population uh yes um but it's not done as like and these are the touchstones we will all start with it's more mm. a constant discussion and a constant revisitation and yeah yeah so it is the opposite of what's happening with the high school selections pretty much yeah well they're not even selections at this point they're just right. like it's a curriculum you just, yeah they're mile markers almost they're just like they're yep. there they're they're stuck there right who comes up with that Ah, you know, that that's a good question. I haven't I'm not not super informed. The I don't know either. I, yeah, I was just wondering, because, yeah, like you said, they haven't changed, but there has to be some body. Right. That says yeah. the group of people that say these are the ones. And then next year they're like, yeah, we'll re up on those again. You know, like well, yeah. something like that. There's got to be a committee or something. No, I yeah. Or like a conference or just a legislative sort of whatever. We yeah. should follow up. We should do the we research should, in yeah. that bring that back but anyway so, um okay well i have a similar question for you for sociology all right <laughs> unless you want to like move us along no, no I, I just want to keep hammering you with like these really yeah, i know i know <laughs> push, push that back so but i, I think it, for two reasons one this is what hooks is really talking about in chapter nine mm -hmm. it's that that sort of push back um, until, as you say, there's, there's, you know, some breakthroughs in bringing feminist theory to talk about black experiences. Um, um, but my understanding of sociology is the literature is always being updated and always changing. And, and she describes this period where 
there's really a closed mindedness to certain ways of thinking and, and approaches. Um, do you feel like that's still the case for certain groups or certain sort of theories or lines of thought or? I, I do. I, I think that sometimes there's like a rush to um, the most recently found um, ideas and theories. And there's a real quick subscription to those type of things um, that is almost always immediately followed with regret with doing that. And because we didn't know what we didn't know about it. And I think even with classical theory, this is what happened at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and it just got refined, right? But then what I find is, for example, you know, when you look at like a lot of contemporary theory around inequity and inequality, it almost always ties back to Marx and conflict theory. Yeah. Now, not exactly, because the nuance and, and the variations and, and the, the different ways of measurement that have occurred between then and now are significant. Mm. But at the base of it, this is why we still talk about Karl Marx today, right? And Karl Marx is typically used in a couple of different ways that, that is unfortunate. Um, I think one of the ways is to say that all problems are inherently class problems, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about race or gender or sexuality, what you're really talking about is social class. Right. And if we solve that, then these others wouldn't be as prevalent or as strong or as, as um, detrimental to people's lives. Now, I'm not saying I believe that. I'm just saying that's an argument that exists. Right. And then, um, you know, the other way that Marx is used is a perversion of all these other theories and like saying that, oh, feminist theory is really just Marx. And then, you know, the, it, it, sure. and it's not. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would say that I've seen when I first started in, in sociology and as an undergraduate and then as a, as a graduate student, um, you know, critical race theory was pretty much the the fuel that made the machine of my graduate program go. And so I kind of grew up in that. And then today, what I see is that that has definitely transformed into like people... <laughs> You know, like I, I could go talk to somebody at a restaurant or like in the grocery store and they have an opinion on critical race theory. Right. Which is amazing to me because like I don't I sometimes I, I'm not even confident, Curry, that I have an opinion on critical race theory, <laughs> you know, and I studied it for 10 years. Right. Because it, it, it's like, well, I do know it and I definitely know it differently than they know it. Right. But it's become one of those things, much like sociology itself, maybe even psychology, maybe even literature is experiencing, you know, the similar kind of thing where people, the, the, the dominant discourse around the thing itself is really far away from what the thing itself is to the people that are in the thing itself. Right. Yeah. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So for sociologists and for people in, in law and people in a lot of different spaces, critical race theory is applicable to all systems because of the consideration of history and what, what you know, got to quote one of my um, mentors and saying that the residue of history and, and what remains from from system structures, policies that may not have been thought up today and maybe even defunct, but they, they you know, the elements and, and the feelings, emotions, and even very real consequences of racist um, structures remains. And I think that's where people get lost in it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like saying that the most prevalent, overt, in your face racism is being produced right now. That's what it could feel like. But what it actually is saying is we haven't dug in deep enough mm -hmm. to see where this is actually in every single dirty corner of our social institutions. Right. 
And while I've seen the turn to go expose those dirty corners, look under the rugs, under the couch cushions, and even the ones that are right there in front of your face, because those haven't gone away completely. What it's actually done in some ways, in my mind, has hurt the social justice movement because anything that is not connected to it or seemingly isn't can be evidence used against those that say it's so prevalent. And, and so um, can you can you provide like a for instance to that just to for like, instance, unpack that a bit? We are recording at a time where members of the Memphis Police Department just recently, um, they're being charged with murder now. And it was, I believe, five black officers who beat a black man. And uh, the black man died three days later. Yeah. In that instance, people can say this is an act that is tied to white supremacy. And I believe they can have a strong argument for that. But my point is people are probably not even willing to hear the argument because what we see, the visceral reaction is those cops were black. That guy was black. Right. How dare you bring white supremacy into this argument? Right. Without seeing that white supremacy is not necessarily about white people. Right. It's about whiteness. Yeah. And the structure that puts people of color in positions to be beaten by police. Right. Now, did were these guys black? Yes. Did they beat this man to death, essentially? Yes. And I think, see, this is where the social justice movement is hurt when the argument of white supremacy for this situation comes up. To me, we could start with power. Mm -hmm. We could start with abuse. We Mm -hmm. could start with lack of leadership. Then, if you want to look really deeply into this, you're going to see that if you use the canonical definition of white supremacy, it absolutely applies to this situation. Right. But I don't know if that's where we start. So we get into an argument about what race the police were, what race the victim is. This is a problem that we as a society need to figure out. Right. And and in doing that, simultaneously, we can use all sorts of theory, all sorts of ways of measurement, all sorts of social scientific methodology to understand this better. Yeah. White supremacy certainly isn't excluded from that. For sure. It makes me think again of that quote from hooks that we read earlier that you could translate, you may need to translate this into a standard if you want a broader audience. And she's talking about students and writers using black vernacular and, you know, you may, if, if your purpose is to push that message out, you may need to translate it. But then she has that caveat. But we should learn to listen in fragments. We should learn to write in the silence, et cetera. And so I think what you're getting at there is a word like white supremacy or a, a theory that says every problem is a class problem. If you're all you're trying to do is sort of like, we just need to join together. We need to solve this. We need a larger movement. You could say, all right, I'll use your term. I'll use your term for now just to get you on board. But I do think you, you risk something there, right? You, you, you risk, as you said, if, if what we need to do is dig deep and look deep, then we should use language like white supremacy, right? I think it's disingenuous not to. Yeah. It's what? I think it's disingenuous not to. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you, yeah. And what I think sometimes the real problem within that particular situation is our lack of trust for each other. It's our lack of relationship with each other. And if you use a word that where whatever, whatever side I'm on uh, sort of triggers my thinking in a way that now I'm just sort of questioning your motives that, you know, 
I wonder, I wonder how do we get to a place where that's not my first move? My, my, my other move, my first move is, listen, I, I trust you and, and I trust that we're going to the right place, but what you're saying right now is giving me pause or is just maybe we're missing something here. Let, what do you, what are you saying? And, and what do we mean by it? And you know what I mean? And that's a lot I, of work. That's a lot of work. I'm not saying that in every situation we should do that work, but. Right. I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that the first move is an important move because I don't know if somebody came out and said, oh, look, this is evidence of white supremacy. And then there's a counter of like, how could that be? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Or if it was the other way that somebody said, oh, look at what happened. Is it all white supremacy after all? And then somebody said, well, actually, if you look at it, it is and da, 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 da. I don't know what the first move was, but I think when we get caught up in that, we're definitely not looking at solutions. We're not collectively coming together. There is no trust, like you're saying. And it misses the point (laughs) that there was an abuse of power. Yes. There was a gang-like mentality. Oh, man. Yeah. And these people violated our trust in what we believe police officers should be. Yeah. And, and within that, within that group, a dehumanization of a community of people, right? Of black people. In a particular uh, space. And especially this individual That's who, right. passed, who, who got murdered by these right. guys. Yeah. You know, at the very least, he was dehumanized. Right. That's he was right. treated like garbage, worse yeah. than garbage. Right. And it was disturbing. And I think that any arguments over over what is the structural, you know, label we need to use for this particular incident misses the point of this was wrong and we need to do something better. Yeah. And I think. I mean, and, and so we've just also had in the last couple of weeks, a series of mass shooting um where this is america so you don't have to time stamp that one no that's right that's right that's right um but these ones uh were um uh members of the asian community um um um, uh, latinx community Mm -hmm. were were murdered different classes right and and also the the shooters are of that race or a a person of color etc so i'm bringing this up just to say that like First of all, I'm experiencing those things in my, in, in, you know, as a white male, as a father, um, for, uh, you know, a community member. And, and I bring those things into my classroom. That's a different experience than how other people are experiencing these things. So I want to validate that. But I'm bringing those things into my classroom with a sense of urgency. It's like, like, just to take this back to where we started, like, yeah, like, I want my students to be thinking about race and white supremacy. I want my students thinking about dominant systems of domination. People are dying, right? Like I, so this is urgent, but, and then at the same time, I'm mindful of if I start a class like that, I might immediately alienate a certain percentage of my students. And where do we go from there? So I even, so do you know what I mean? And this is a real struggle because it's like, I feel this urgency and I don't want to delay or, or sort of not do certain things because I'm worried about how it'll be received. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to just be cynical or strategic. Like, here's the only way we do it. I got to code my words. It's that trust move. It's, and this is what, and just take it back that foundation you were talking about. We're now week two. This is, I've said this in every single class meeting. We've met three times and I've said, this can be a room and it can be a group of people where you, you, you choose to risk something, not totally sure how it's going to land because you know that they're choosing to listen and we can choose to listen to each other. I'm, and I'm not saying we're going to be that or, or it's guaranteed we're going to be that I'm presenting it as we can choose to be that group in this space and I'll, I'll facilitate and I'll shepherd us through it. Um, and that's, what's possible. And that's about all I can do. That's about, I, I don't know what else I can do um, to get us to a place where we can talk in that way, but we can, we can really at one point bring this urgency in and listen to each other and talk it through. Yeah. And I'm, I'm struggling there. So I'm, 
I'm processing out loud with you that this is mm-hmm. this is about where I am in in this work, uh, but I don't know if it's the right thing and and et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think that that's about all I have. I know, right and. Now. Yeah, Sean, you just finished teaching, so you're like, I, I, yeah, because you know, I have I have my own kind of thoughts about the ways to bring that to a class. I don't think it works for everyone, and I, I you know, so to me, I I can't. I'm trying. It's a space that I'm not usually in, where I'm trying to be careful of what I say right here. So no, I I got you, I got you, and I. Yeah. I don't I don't ever want what we say on this podcast to ever be be sort of heard as like this is how you do it. Like, oh no, yeah. And ever. please don't <laughs> don't ever think that yeah. But it, the way that I do it might be criticized, you know? Sure. And and my audience for that criticism are my students. Yeah. And and I will I I'll I'll definitely take that there, but yeah. right. Um, you know, that's between me and them. I respect that. that. I think that's 100%. <laughs> All right. Any, any final thoughts on these chapters or where we're going next? Oh, I'm looking forward to where we're going next. Teaching cool. communities. Yep. I'm looking yes. forward to that one too. Oh, wait. Was it that one? Yes. Building oh. a teaching community. Chapter. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's, it's, it's going to take a while because it's it's a good one. And it's uh, there's a lot there. So I'm, I'm ready for it. Sweet. Awesome. If you heard anything in this episode that has you thinking about how you teach, why you teach, or if anything made you feel joyful or even mad, like you just yelled at your dishes or whooped while you were walking your neighborhood. I've done those things. <laughs> then we really want to hear from you. You can find us on the Twitter at safe topics. Let us know how you're responding to today's book stuff. Like what did we miss? Or what did we totally get right? Or what questions did we raise for you? And best of all, how are you thinking about your teaching and students? We'll update what we're reading so you can read along if you want. And your feedback will shape our discussions as we go. We may even read some comments in the episodes to come. And not just the nice ones. Safe Topics is a safe setting for dangerous topics. That's right. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. We've never really asked people to do that before. I know. I think it's cool, though. We're ready to be rated and subscribed Yeah, and big thanks to Kelly Burnett and the rest of the Safe Topics team for editing, producing, promoting, and all the other wonderful backstage stuff you do. <laughs> and thank you for listening. <laughs>